Following the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his followers suffered 300 years of intermittent persecution. Throughout those three long centuries, Christianity was viewed as an illicit sect in the Roman Empire. These were, to borrow a phrase, the best of times, and these were certainly the worst of times for the followers of Jesus. 300 years. Then, suddenly, unexpectedly, everything changed. Almost overnight. In the year 313 A.D., the Emperor Constantine, a pagan, legalized Christianity. Soon, this very same emperor was personally running a promotional campaign, recruiting converts to the newly legalized faith. In 324, just nine years after legalizing Christianity, Constantine offered 20 pieces of gold and a white baptismal robe to any pagan who would convert to the faith. The people were lined up around the corner. In one year alone, in the city of Rome, 30,000 people became Christians and took their gold and took their robe home. Constantine continued. He offered Senate seats to pagan officials who were willing to convert. He enthusiastically granted tracts of land and handed over pagan temples to local churches. As barbarian tribes invaded from the north into the Roman Empire, they came looking to be culturized, wanting a piece of the Greco-Roman Empire, and now all of a sudden that meant becoming a Christian. And so coming with their pagan views, they came into the empire and embraced Christianity in a societal shift of staggering proportions. It is estimated that in only 100 years, the empire went from 10 to 20% Christian to 90% in just 100 years. Christianity was wildly popular. There were perks. Joining the church of Jesus Christ was profitable. We're a long, long ways from those days, aren't we? Yet strangely familiar strains can be still heard. I don't think there's a church out there offering a suit of clothing and some CDs in the bank to anybody who will attend and profess Christ today. Yet there is, in our peaceful environment, a prominent theological perspective that touts the message, come to Jesus and he will make you wealthy. Come to Jesus and he will make you healthy. In fact, Jesus is oriented towards you to benefit your life in every possible way. Now there are Christians in our day who are suffering like those who suffered in the first three centuries of Christianity. But there are others, particularly in peaceful places like this, that are saying something much more like the next 300 years of Christian experience. Christianity has perks. Followers of Jesus are benefited and profited in unbelievable ways. For many other churches who would not buy into the specific health and wealth theology, many of them 
It's not so much a matter of theology as it is a practice sending this very same message. The rapid numerical growth of such churches, the trendy sermons in many of what are referred to as these mega churches create the impression that following Jesus is a bandwagon ride that you just don't want to miss. We encounter today all around us the trendy Jesus. We encounter the non-threatening Jesus. The bless your socks off Christ. The fix all your problems immediately celestial psychologist Jesus. He's everywhere in this land. But I'd like us to go together today Enjoying the dusty, sun-baked trail of those who actually walked with him. Those who actually followed Jesus and heard him speak. And as we walk on the trail with them today, we get a different perspective. In fact, it is the perspective of Jesus himself. Let's let him speak. As Luke depicts Jesus making this meandering journey throughout Palestine toward Jerusalem where he will give his life, Jesus' teachings and his miracles have combined to make him wildly popular in Israel. Massive crowds are following Jesus now from town to town. Everything is picked up and they're going with him, traveling with him in this massive body of people, tracking through village after village as they hear him speak the same themes and see him uh, heal miraculously. These adoring crowds are caught up in the unparalleled excitement of the messianic times. This is good. In the last section of Luke 14, Jesus turns to address these people and teaches us how he expects his followers to relate to him. We notice there in 1425 this simple phrase, and I'd like to stop on it for a while. We'll make further, quicker progress in a moment. But you notice there it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. That might not strike us this way, particularly coming to this verse at this point in time. But that's really a major transition in Luke's account of this journey to Jerusalem, going from 951 to 1944, a very massive section of the book of Luke. Turning to the crowds indicates a shift in emphasis from at least 1114 to 1424. The primary emphasis has been upon the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus continues to go back to them and speak to them. And remember, if you were here last week, as we went through that passage, we looked in the preceding text. Jesus once again heals in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And Jesus speaks there very pointedly to the leaders of Israel and says to them, unless something changes, you are not going to be in the banquet of the kingdom of God. You're going to be cut out. You're going to be knocking on the door, pleading to get in, but you will be separated from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of of God because you are rejecting Messiah. Now, Jesus will talk to these leaders again, but he's not going to talk to them very much in the text of Luke. 
From this point forward, the emphasis falls primarily upon the crowds and upon the disciples. And so when we read that large crowds were traveling with Jesus and he turned to them saying, we are seeing a major shift of emphasis as he now begins to work with the people that may yet respond. How does Jesus address them? What does he say? What does it mean to track with Jesus Christ? The call comes there in verse 25. Let's pick it up where it says, He turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, weigh in here, folks. Would you call that seeker-sensitive? Is that non-threatening language? These are shocking words, aren't they? They cut deep and they awaken self-analysis. Hate those who are nearest and dearest to me? Jesus, what could you possibly mean? And I think that's what Jesus intends, like many of his parables, to lay out this shocking statement and to allow us to work through the details. But to get our attention, he puts it this way, you must hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and your own life as well. You must carry a cross if you intend to be my disciple. What does he mean? Well, let's think through it. Does he mean simple, literal hate? The law of Moses would teach us on this point. Jesus came to fulfill in, perfect, in a perfect sense the law of Moses. And the law of Moses calls us to honor our parents. Exodus 20 and verse 12. No parent on earth is going to feel honored by a child that hates him or her. Jesus commanded his followers on another occasion to love your enemies. He commanded his followers on another occasion in this book, Luke chapter 10, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Are we to love all people, even our enemies, while hating our families, whom God himself loves? Jesus, remember, invited the children to come to him, and he blessed them, and he encouraged them to come. Does Jesus now demand the children of those same parents to hate them that he has so blessed and loved? Clearly not. According to Genesis chapter 2, according to Ephesians chapter 5, husbands and wives are to be united together and are to love one another to demonstrate the love between Christ and his church. Is Jesus then commanding those same people to hate one another when he says you must hate your wife? I think the interpretive key can be found here in Luke chapter 14 at the end of verse 26. That phrase, yes, even his own life, I think is an interpretive key. Jesus is not advocating suicide there. And in application, he is not advocating that we hate and despise and harm 
the people who are closest to us. What it means to hate yourself is what Jesus means when he says to hate your family and your loved ones. What does that mean? I think the idea is that Christ's disciples are to subject every love and every relationship to the Lordship of Jesus. Such submission to Jesus may at times, in fact, look like hatred toward your family. When a person chooses, for instance, to leave family and home and to go off to another country to serve as a missionary, there is, it might be seen by some as a hatred toward family. There are times, I have been in very little occasions such as that, but there have been those times when I have left for weeks at a time to serve Christ in other places. And it's, there, there's something that, that grips your heart and hurts when you do that as you leave your family and your long, young children and your wife and say, what good does this do them? What good does it do them? Now there's much good. We won't fill that in here. But that's hard. And think if you could go back in time to, let's say, the 1800s, when missionaries would leave and not come home, ever sometimes. Your only chance of coming home as a missionary was to come home because you were sick and somebody put up the incredible amount of money to bring you back. Or maybe it was because you were, became famous as a missionary. The vast majority of missionaries didn't qualify. They didn't come home. And you see someone there at the dock boarding the ship and leaving family behind for good. That could certainly be seen as hatred. Hatred in a certain sense, not in a literal sense of despising, but in a sense of orienting one's life toward Christ in such a way that family ties are secondary. Is this you? Is this me? Jesus says you must hate your father and mother. Young people, are you willing to leave mom and dad? to go anywhere that God sends you? Do you put limits on how far you will travel away from home? I wonder, mates, if we are willing to serve Christ more than our mates. Parents, we love our children. Do we love Jesus more? Is Jesus at the center of your universe, or are your children at the center of your universe? Do you ever serve others at the cost of your children? Does the cause of Jesus Christ take away time and attention and interest and good from your family?
Have you let go of their future to the will of God? To go anywhere that God sends them and to do anything that God wants them to do? Have you really let go? I talked to a professor of theology who works at a major seminary, and he got pretty excited one day as he was expressing one of his great concerns as a seminary professor. He's serving in a southern state, and he said that in that state and in the culture of that state, it is sort of your obligation to make sure that the grandkids grow up near, their, near your parents. And so he speaks to seminarians whose parents have put this pressure on them to not leave this state, not leave this area so that we can see the grandchildren grow up. And this professor was almost beside himself saying how hard it is for him to teach seminarians, you must go wherever Jesus calls you. And if that means leaving mother and father, you go. There's many qualifiers, obviously. We can so serve Christ as to despise his purposes for the home and our relationship to our mates and our children. And all of those qualifiers can be supplied here. But I don't see that as an epidemic in Christianity right now, not in this country. There are those examples of people who put their children and their wives aside, pastors in particular, and serve something other. But I don't think what they're serving is Christ. I think what they're serving is their own glory. You find someone that is truly serving Jesus Christ, and Christ will be first, and the family will be benefited. It will be both. But it will be in a weird way. It will be in a way that the world looks at it and says, do you hate your family? Sometimes it will be in that way. Do you hate, in a relative sense, relating to Christ, your children, your parents, your mates, your family members? Are you, verse 27, willing to carry your cross? Criminals condemned to die by crucifixion were often forced to carry the crossbeam of their cross to the place of execution. And anyone who was standing on the side of the road and watching such an individual dragging that crossbeam knew that man was on a one-way trip. He wasn't coming back. The life of a man who bears a cross on his back is for all practical purposes already over. His orientation is toward death. And so says Jesus, you must take your cross if you want to be my disciple. To clarify that point, Jesus is going to add two illustrations here. This is the essence of his call, verses 26 and 27. Note how he illustrates it with two parables. First of all, a tower builder, verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. 
tower building was something that was done. Don't think skyscraper downtown Minneapolis. Think of a, a fairly uh, modest tower that was put up over a vineyard to watch, to protect that vineyard. Sometimes they were erected in, in towns or in cities. Simple towers. Here the tower is a self-project, a person's individual project, and so probably is there to serve as a storage area and a guard post for a vineyard. When a building project of this sort is started, the foundation is laid, but the project doesn't get completed, everybody asks questions. One of the enduring images that I have and Gordon has as we were in Lithuania was to see these large shells of buildings that were empty. You could see right through them. I, I just never forget those, those pictures and those images of these unfinished buildings. What was the problem? I mean, just, just seeing a building like that, you say, what's the problem? It was just evident that it wasn't going on, that it had been there for a very long time. This was an evidence of the fall of communism. The Soviet Union had started these building projects, but with the fall of communism, everything stopped, and you have all these empty shells. Uh, not many, but they're, they're prominent, and they stick in your mind. When a building is not finished, you ask why. Now listen, says Jesus, would you ever start to build a tower without first sitting down to see if you have the resources and the ability to finish the tower? then listen, if you are going to become a follower of me, you better sit down and do some calculating. Because there are costs to this project. To counterbalance any notion that the cost may be too high, Jesus presents another parable at verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. You see the king there seated on his horse at the center of the front line of his troops. His horse nervously paws the earth and his brave foot soldiers ready themselves for the inevitable battle. And the king's penetrating eyes scan the horizon, see the ridge across the valley in between with woods lining that ridge, and out of those woods suddenly start to come, comes the other army. And the king's heart sinks. As he sees the enemy foot soldiers emerging from the woods, he realizes that he is outnumbered dram <coughs> Excuse me, dramatically. He's desperately outnumbered. To engage this enemy in this valley at this time would be slaughter. His mind is racing. He considers his options and calls an ambassador to journey by horse across that valley and to meet the other king and to seek terms of surrender. Now listen carefully as I draw from a commentator who I think has said this well. In the parable of the tower builder, Jesus calls us to consider whether we can afford to follow him. In this parable, he calls us to consider whether we can afford not to. Will you afford to follow Jesus? K. 
can you afford not to? Will you continue to battle him and resist him? Or will you count the cost and lay everything down to follow Christ? I believe verse 33 is a summary of this call in verses 25 and 26, built up by these illustrations, summarizing all that Jesus is saying here in this place to these followers. Verse 33, he says, In the same way, just like this builder, just like this king, as I have called you, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. As the wise king lays down his arms in surrender to the superior force, so the disciple of Christ must surrender his possessions, his freedom, and his very life. Jesus is not commanding his disciples to disperse their wealth here necessarily, but rather to renounce any claim of ownership upon it. As he says you must hate your life, so he is saying here you must hate your possessions, that is, you must surrender them willingly to the Lordship of Christ. I think Jesus, in summary, is saying something like this. The life you had, living your own way for your own pleasure, laying claim on your own possessions, kiss that life goodbye. You own nothing. You don't rule your own soul any longer. You have come to realize who I am. Relate to me as who I truly am. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, your life orientation must forever shift toward Jesus and away from self and competing passions however near and dear they are. What has Jesus touched here? He has touched family. I hope it's true of you as it's true of me. And if not, Christ can lead you there. But as it is true of me, there's no person on this earth to whom I am closer than Beth Miller. I love her. There are no children on this earth that are closer to me than my children. I love them. And let's all admit that the things that we possess and the things that we have earned and the things that we have labored to get in this world are dear to our hearts. And Jesus puts his finger on every one of them and says, it's mine. Lay down your arms and come follow me. That's not Jesus' light. That's Jesus straight up. And that's not easy. But Jesus does say, remember, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, this confusing Jesus. Lay down your life. Renounce claim to everything that you own. Submit absolutely to me and know that my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. What a king who has conquered our soul. Jesus concludes here in this section with a parable. Verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. In Christ's day, salt was used to preserve food. It was used to make it tastier, but it also, as is reflected here, was thrown on manure piles to keep them from fermenting and to keep the smell down, and also scattered on the soil to fertilize it. Technically speaking, sodium chloride is a stable substance. It cannot break down. It never loses its saltiness, but... In that day, all that they knew of salt was to find salt around the Dead Sea in evaporated pools, and it would be mixed with gypsum. And as water would contact that salt, the salt would leach out, the sodium chloride would leach out, and what was left to them was salt that had lost its saltiness. He who has ears to hear, says Jesus, let him hear. In this context, what can this possibly mean? Jesus uses this salt theme in various ways, but what can it possibly mean here? He who has ears, let him hear. Salt that has lost its taste is worthless. Remember Jesus said earlier, you are the salt of the earth. And I think contextually he's dealing here with the discipleship theme. We are called as disciples of Jesus to influence this world for good. We are called to go into this world and make a difference in the name of Jesus. We are called to go as his disciples. And so the question that is here as we have ears to hear is, are you a useful and potent disciple of Jesus Christ? Candidates for discipleship who do not count the cost. Disciples who do not renounce claim to their lives. Who do not put family and self and possessions in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ are tasteless. And Jesus even uses the word useless. They're unfit for the manure pile. Well, you can't accuse Jesus of false advertisement. That's for sure. He lays it all out. His call to potential disciples is a call to renounce claim to everything and to subject all to the Lordship of Christ. That's the call. That's who he is. That's what's before us. To follow Jesus Christ is to orient your entire life toward Him and toward His purposes. Self and family and possessions and everything else that we hold near and dear are to be given over and spent on His cause. The reason for this call is not to be harsh. It's not to make life miserable. As I said, remember, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This call is simply for us to see what is real. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. 
Are these entrance requirements, some might ask, to heaven? Is becoming a disciple of Jesus becoming a believer, becoming a Christian? Is that what Jesus is laying out? I think there's a lot of confusion on this point. I don't believe that Jesus is giving here simply entrance requirements to the kingdom of God. Not as such. He does not intend here to spell out the minimal requirements for entering heaven. That's not his focus. That's not even the subject or the topic. When people asked about the fundamental requirement for salvation, when they asked this question, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus said, believe in me. John chapter 6 and verse 29. The point is not this. You renounce family and you renounce possessions and you go on this one-way journey carrying your cross and you will have made yourself fit to enter the kingdom of God. You will have made yourself fit to become a Christian. That's not what Jesus is saying. Salvation is by faith alone in what Christ has done. The point here is, who is this Jesus whom you are trusting. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the incarnate, crucified, sacrificial Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, whom you embrace in faith, is the risen Savior, the conqueror of death. He is the ascended Lord, seated and reigning at the right hand of the Father until His enemies are subjected to Him. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the all-powerful, the all-wise, and the all-loving God. He is the ultimate reality. And if this is not the Jesus that you have trusted as your Savior, you are following an idol. This is who I am, says Jesus. This is what it means to embrace me by faith and follow me. It means to acknowledge that I am Lord of all. And Christians worth their salt know it, and they act as if it were true. Christians worth their salt know that Jesus comes first, at all times, in every way, whatever the cost. Jesus Christ is King. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, what mixed emotions come from such a consideration. It's not been my labor to make anyone feel good about themselves. Because I don't think that that's what Jesus intended to do in this passage. And so as we look at Jesus laying claim to everything that is near and dear to us, Lord, we sense our weakness. 
we sense how important things are to us. Lord, we are troubled. And by your grace, we are confessing our sin. But God, there are other passions and emotions and affections that are moving and stirring within us. For who else would we want to worship and serve than the God of the universe? To follow Jesus Christ, acknowledging Him for who He is, embracing Him as Savior, and living out that faith in Him. What joy and what privilege is ours. We sense, Lord, though we see our insufficiency, we sense the wonder and the glory that our King reigns. That our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God of gods and Lord of lords. And so we rejoice in our heart and we are enthused and excited to consider His greatness and His authority. And so I pray, Lord, if there's one among us who does not know Jesus as personal Savior, that they would come to realize this is who He is and not strive over the next several months or years to get their life all in order. But I pray that like that king, they would fall down on their knees and submit to the conquering King Jesus and realize that he comes to conquer them, but that as he comes to conquer them, he comes to conquer sin. And I pray that such a person would turn to Christ and join his army today. For those of us that know Christ as Savior, God, do a work in our hearts that we would hold lightly our dearest relationships and that we would hold lightly the possessions of this world. That we would take our cross and follow on a one-way trip to glory through suffering. May this be our response, Lord. And may we live as salt in this world, influencing others for the glory of your name in the face of our Lord Jesus, to whom we give praise and glory and thanks to your everlasting majesty and glory. We pray in the Spirit and in the name of our Savior. Amen.